really a matter of like, why me? Why should I do this? I didn't go to Harvard in terms of like business school. I'm very much like a average normal person who spotted something. And for me, it was a lot of, I don't know if you want to call it like imposter syndrome. Like I called it, an, you know, kind of like self critic or inner critic. And I had to work on that a lot. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Ashwarya Iyer, to our show today. Ashwarya is the founder and CEO of Brightland, a modern olive oil company that champions authenticity in the olive oil industry and celebrates good design and California living. Ashwarya was living in New York City for years, enjoying all the restaurants the city had to offer before attempting to cook at home. When she started making more meals at home, instead of feeling better, she realized she was feeling worse and ultimately ended up having chronic stomach issues. To her surprise, she learned that the olive oil she was using to cook was the main issue. She discovered that 70% of the olive oil that Americans consume is either rotten, rancid, or has been adulterated. After years of doing research and learning more about the olive oil industry, Ashwarya decided to change the game and started Brightland in 2018 with a mission to transform the relationship we all have with our food. We'll talk to Ashwarya about her path to finding her calling after years of feeling unfulfilled, the steps she took to build the courage to launch her business, how she overcame the inner critic that so many of us have, and what it takes to disrupt an industry and launch a product you have no experience in. Welcome to the show, Ashwarya. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so jazzed to chat. Likewise, I'm a big fan of your olive oil. I love your story. I love how honest and transparent you are about your journey and everything you're up to today. So I can't wait to jump into it. So I'd love to start with your upbringing. I know you moved quite a bit as a young child and you talk a lot about how your parents really wanted safety and stability for you, which I resonate with. I'm sure a lot of people listening do as well. Can you share more about your childhood and how you think that's influenced who you are today? Oh gosh. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in a first generation Indian immigrant household Spent most of my childhood in Houston, Texas, but as you said, I was born in India, we moved to Massachusetts, then Chicago, so, you know, kind of popped around a little bit, ended up in Houston, and most of my formative years were there, and I think my parents really wanted us to have a simple, comfortable, safe, like all of those kinds of words really come to mind when I think about my childhood, which is such a privilege, but I think they wanted that to continue for our lives and certainly for our careers. And so it was always like, you know, be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, like be the things that we see around us. And so I think I grew up kind of thinking in that way too. I always say that I think my dreams when I was younger were so much smaller than what my life has turned out to be because I didn't see anything else and didn't think I could do anything else. And so it was a an interesting kind of situation where I eventually, when I got to college, I felt like I wasn't following my purpose and I felt it deep down inside of me, but couldn't articulate what that was at the time, but nothing felt right. And it was only when I moved to New York City to you know, go to NYU and I started doing internships and being just 
exposed to the careers and the paths and people's journeys and seeing, oh my God, it is a big world out there. And there is so much that you can do beyond the paths that had been carved out before. I think that was just really eye-opening. I also want to add that, you know, my grandfather on my mother's side was an entrepreneur. So I got to see that entrepreneurial spirit, but I never admitted to myself that I could have that. It was almost too much of an audacity. So now looking back on it, I think that I had it all along, but wasn't able to reconcile with it. Oh my gosh. There's so much that I just want to unpack there. You know, I think you don't know what you don't know. And that's why it's so important to just get educated, get exposure. I mean, being in a city like New York, you have such a diverse group of people and industries around to learn from. And one thing I'm curious about, so I know you ended up going to UT Austin and you mentioned earlier where you weren't really sure what your interests were, but you knew this wasn't it. How did you decide that NYU, and I believe you were secretly applying to transfer. How did you know that was the right step for you at that time? Yeah, I think for me, it was... You know, honestly, I wasn't sure, but it was knowing that New York was this huge city that it felt unlimited. And when I thought about it, I thought it felt abundant and it felt like I could almost reinvent who I was, which I don't think at the end of the day, I don't think I necessarily did. I just found myself a little bit more. But at that time, I was looking for reinvention and it felt like New York could be the place to do that. So that was the impetus to say, you know, okay, New York might be it. And then afterward with NYU, specifically within NYU, the school that I applied to and ended up going to was the Gallatin School of Individualized Study. And it's a very special school because you design your own curriculum and your own major. So in that instance, you are doing something entrepreneurial. No two people have the same concentration and you have to get buy-in from your advisors and from your professors. And in order to graduate, you do something called a colloquium, which is almost like a master's dissertation kind of. And so I think knowing that I would come to New York, come to NYU and be in a school like that was also really, I think, galvanizing for me. Absolutely. It sounds like an incredible opportunity. I didn't know that NYU had that curriculum. So you mentioned in college, you were able to somewhat tap into that entrepreneurial spirit of yours. And I know out of school, you actually worked at L'Oreal in a more corporate environment, but I feel like you were always finding ways to be creative and entrepreneurial, even in a bigger space. Can you share more about that experience? Because I think that is really pivotal in what was yet to come in your professional life. Yeah, definitely. I think I always gravitated towards things that moved quickly, things that were, I think I was always the person that got bored easily, even in school. So for me, I always looked to what are ways that we can do something that's either new and create like a team within a team, or let's try to test things out to kind of like fuel that need to be nimble and stay creative. And so when I was at L'Oreal, you know, I was very junior, but, you know, we were exploring whether YouTube would be something that was of relevance, you know? And so like being able to even be a part of those conversations was such a, like, I knew that there was something here that we were, you know, sort of doing something that was cutting edge, if you will, because at that time, no beauty brand would have ever thought to be on social media. So that was really, really interesting. But at the end of the day, I think for me, like after L'Oreal, you know, I went to a a startup called Second Market and that's where I think I really sunk my teeth into what it means to move quickly and what it means to be a part of something that is 
moving a million miles an hour and mistakes are made and you learn and you iterate really fast. I think that was a really pivotal time for me. I love to hear that. You know, it's interesting because I always tell people having that startup experience is so helpful, especially if you want to go and start your own business. And I was working at a company in LA and I remember the founder looked at me and goes, we move really fast. It is so intense here. I'm like, I got this. I was in banking. I know fast pace and it's a whole nother level. So I love that experience. And it shows that, you know, even that experience is probably helping you so much with Brightland and even going on your own, right? Definitely every day, because you also learn what you don't want to do. You also learn lessons and like when you're moving quickly, what does get compromised? What are you willing to compromise? And what does it mean to move quickly? Like for, you know, with Brightland and even at Second Market or any company that I've been a part of, it's never been about burning the midnight oil. That's not necessarily to me like, oh, we're moving fast that all you're doing is working all day and night. It's more so, can you make decisions quickly? Can you come to agreements quickly? You know, let's say you're doing a partnership with an outside party. Can you make that happen in in a really quick fast amount of time rather than mulling and humming and hawing over it. One thing I'd love to hear more about is, so you're working at these startups, you're living in the New York City dream. And I'd love to hear more about how your interest of olive oil kind of even came about. (laughs) Yes. So I'm living in New York, as you said, working at these companies and enjoying every restaurant under the sun in the city. I had like a spreadsheet of hundreds of restaurants. And then I started cooking more with my partner and we both kept noticing that we kept getting these like awkward belly aches and we didn't want to tell each other that like our stomach was kind of hurting. And eventually we like said it out loud and started eliminating things. Like we cut out bread, we cut out dairy. Someone told us maybe you should cut out some of the spice you're eating, trying to eliminate things. And then a nutritionist friend said something like, you know, it might be the cooking oil you're using. I had never given it a second thought. It was not on my radar. At the time I was working in fintech, like so zero interest or knowledge of cooking oil, let alone olive oil, but we were using olive oil. So, you know, I Googled bad olive oil or something. And what showed up was that north of 70% of the olive oil that Americans consume is rancid, it's rotten, or it's been adulterated, which means it's been blended with inferior oils like palm oil, canola oil, stuff that you just don't want in your body, stuff that you don't think you're even consuming. I was blown away by it. I saw 60 Minutes had done pieces on this. So I went down this rabbit hole and it was really a personal interest and like personal intrigue, right? But, you know, I started asking friends, like, what brand do you use? And no one could tell me what they were using. Everyone was grossed out by this concept. I was like, this is a foundation of our food. And yet there is so much miseducation around this. And that started me down this path of, okay, maybe there's, there's a better way. Absolutely. And I know you were living in New York and then you actually moved to LA for another tech job, I believe. So you always had this personal passion, like you said, around olive oil and wanting to learn more. And I know in your mind, you were even considering maybe creating a certification process. So you had ideas in your head, but you weren't really ready to go all in to create this product or certification process. So I'd love for you to kind of walk through what was going on in your mind and what really gave you the confidence to eventually leave your job and bring this olive oil to life. Well, it was really a matter of like, why me? Why should I do this? I didn't go to Harvard in terms of like business school. I wasn't a famous chef or restaurateur. 
I'm very much like a average normal person who spotted something. And for me, it was a lot of, I don't know if you want to call it like imposter syndrome. Like I called it and, you know, kind of like self critic or inner critic. And I had to work on that a lot because I think that that serves to be such a big obstacle for people when you question like why you, or when you think like people are going to laugh at you and you have to really like rewrite the stories that you've really written about yourself. So I spent a lot of time doing that. And at the same time, I also spent a lot of time doing like the market research and casually reviewing what this could even be. And I felt really strongly, like I knew that I've always, my background was in marketing and communications and building brand. And so that was something that I knew I could do. And that is what sort of propelled me forward where I said, you know, I know how to make people feel something. So I know I can do that with this. That's really beautiful to hear. And I'm curious because I feel like I've gone on a similar journey before I started my business, that self-criticism or imposter syndrome. How did you kind of get through that in your own life? Are there any rituals or experiences that worked for you to just get over that mindset that you had for yourself? Because I think that really holds so many people from either starting their businesses or taking a leap to whatever dreams they have. Yeah, there's a book by Hal Stone about your inner critic. And that was really pivotal. I worked with a life coach for a period of time. That was really helpful. And she had me do a lot of exercises around the concept of fear and of course, self-doubt and all of that. I vision boarded, which may sound really like silly, but it actually really helped to crystallize. What do you want? Like, what do you want out of your life? And what do you think your purpose is? And you're not, you know, getting married to this in a way where like, okay, you know, what I wrote in the vision board or put down in the vision board is going to be what I have to do for 30 years. It's more at least of a direction or guide and something coming from the inside without even you like really realizing it. Those things are all really powerful. Talking about the vision board, some people might think it's woo-woo, but I think once you're really clear about what you want, it's so much easier to go after it. When you have all these ideas in your head and you want so many different things, it just seems like a bigger accomplishment than it really is once you put it down on paper, at least. Knowing what you want is, and you probably already know, but you're almost afraid to face it. So like getting switching to that and being able to know what you want in any situation of life will take you so far. Absolutely. And when you decided to go all in, you know, after working on your mentality around entrepreneurship and fear and taking the leap, were your parents or friends supportive? I mean, how was your support system at the time? And how important was that for you when you were making this transition? Yeah, that's a great question. I think everyone was supportive. Everyone was a little bit had a smile on their face of like, okay, that's fun. But I think that's all I needed. I didn't really need anyone else's sort of like, you can do this. I think my biggest champion was my partner, my husband. And he was definitely like galvanized and excited. I think that I sort of took a step back and thought a lot about ultimately, like when I'm 80 plus, if I live to be 80 plus, I don't want to have regrets. And I looked at it in that way. So I wanted to take that leap for myself. 
That's really powerful. I'm so glad you did because I love the product and, you know, can't wait to even see more uh, additions of what else you guys are bringing to this world. So you finally decide to go all in with Brightland. You know, what were the early steps? I know you said you come from a background of branding, PR, marketing, and you felt really comfortable sharing a story. So can you kind of walk us through how you thought about those early days of the business and the products? Yeah, I think product was everything. Product is table stakes because if you don't have a good product, like yes, brand is wonderful and all of that, but you can't put a crappy product and a beautiful brand together. I mean, I see it all the time and I don't know how long that's going to last, but for us, it was all about an excellent product. And so that was what I spent the most time doing, talking to all of farms in California and talking to farmers and educating myself and taking classes and really understanding this landscape tasted more olive oil than I ever thought I would. And once I found the farm partner that we were really excited about, this wonderful family farm in the Central Coast, that was then the anchor to say, okay, well, let's build on top of that. What does our distribution look like? You know, like, do we go to stores? Should we do this online? Do we do both? What does the brand look and feel like? What does our website look and feel like? What are we really saying? What is the brand name? So like everything else came after that. And I have to say, Google is your best friend. There is so much information out there on on Google. And then I think that, you know, I think it's important to have friends who might be in the similar stage as you, not necessarily folks who are too far ahead because they can't even, sometimes when people ask me now, I can't remember, but when people are in the same stage as you, they might be looking for, even if they're coming out with an apparel line and you're coming out with a, I'm making this up, a catch-up, like they might still be looking for the same type of, you know, box, or at least there might be some notes to share and talk through. And that was incredibly instrumental because I had a three or four friends who are also in similar stages as me with very different kind of products that they were. And how did you guys decide? I know initially when you launched, you were thinking to go just direct to consumer. I'd love for you just to walk through your rationale on why you thought at that point in the business, that was the right way to launch initially. Oh, it was because I didn't know anything else. You know, I didn't have relationships with buyers or brokers or distributors. And I went to a big trade show where all the food brands go like four months before our launch and was so humbled. I had never been to something like that. I was very, I had so much naivete, honestly. And I think that I had known that I wanted us to have a really close relationship with our customer. And I think direct to consumer enabled that and has enabled that for us, but I didn't necessarily understand the undertaking that a retail operation would look like. And so that was very eye-opening. And I said, okay, well, I think maybe one day, but certainly not now because I didn't have the subject matter expertise at all. Yeah, it seems like definitely it's a good first step to do and the most cost-effective as well when you're launching. And I know in the early days, you launched a waitlist and you eventually sold out of your first batch of inventory in three days. So take us back to that moment and share how you created awareness around this product being, you know, a first time entrepreneur in this space? Yeah, a few things. One, I created an Instagram two months before launch and started posting like almost like mood board style. And so we had thousands of followers even before our launch. So that was really helpful. So people knew something was coming. And in the weeks prior to launch, I started teasing it and saying, hey, something is coming and this is what we stand for. This is who we are, but didn't necessarily say what we were. 
I kept coming back to the like why we exist rather than what it is. And that I think piqued people's interest. And then because of my background, I knew that PR would be instrumental for us. So I brought on a food kind of PR agency and they helped secure a placement in the New York Times Tea Style magazine. So the day we launched, we were featured there. And so almost immediately, like, I saw a couple of friends buy and then I started seeing strangers buying, which was like really crazy and amazing. And at the time I was packing every box. So I knew I wanted to like be that close to the process. So I was packing every single box and I still have photos where we have hundreds of boxes all around and I'm like, you know, (laughs) kind of like sitting there packing them, but it was really surreal and certainly would have never thought that we would have captured people's attention in that way so quickly. That's incredible. And was there anything in those early days that didn't work for you guys? Oh my God, so many things. Yeah, so many things. Like even the box that I was saying, the box that we were using, people were taking pictures and posting on Instagram and they were very kind. They didn't complain about it, but the box would be like super ripped up when you opened it. Like it didn't have a nice experience because I hadn't done enough tests kind of shipping back and forth. I did a couple and thought it was fine, but I should have done maybe 10 more. We had issues with our labels on the bottles. Obviously selling out is great, but like that is a problem. What else? Gosh, like I don't think we were set up at the time to ship to Alaska and Hawaii, but then people were buying from there. Like it was very, yeah, just so many things, honestly. But I'm sure there were so many learnings that come from that because I feel like sometimes people want the product to be perfect and there's only so much you can do, right? Launching a business, there's so many things you're thinking about. You think you got your bases covered, but you don't really know what you need to work on until you put it in the hands of consumers and you're like, okay, how do I perfect it? Which seems like that happened with Brightland. Totally. And it's always the things you don't expect. So there's no point in like mulling over it over and over again because something will go wrong and it'll be the thing that you least thought would. And you'd be like, wait, what? That's the thing I'm thinking about? Or that's the thing that's keeping me up at night? So I think, again, having that healthy dose of naivete and like optimism and just jumping in, it's just so important. And I know you bootstrapped the business in the beginning. And I know you had a stint before you started Brightland in the VC world. I'm curious, do you think that experience working in venture capital and meeting other founders kind of swayed you away from going down that path for fundraising? Yes, it definitely did. I think seeing some of the pressure that founders were under and seeing the demands and kind of the sometimes even the control that an investor can have, that was all just really a turnoff for me at the time. And I also wanted to shape our destiny a bit. And I wanted to understand our product market fit, understand our customer. And I also wanted to understand like why I would need investors besides the capital. Like, are there arenas that folks could help us out in, like be more strategic about it? And so, yeah, we were bootstrapped for over a year and it was hard and, you know, but it taught me a lot of lessons and it was definitely the right move. And then we got to a place where it made a lot of sense for us to raise money. And so I raised a small kind of pre-seed round and it was great because I got to... I knew my business well, so I knew what we needed and the kinds of people we needed. And then I also got to understand that like, you know, not all investors are going to operate in a certain way. Like the folks that we have around our table are very much like 
hands off, like this is you. So that has been really great. That's awesome. You know, you hear so many stories just with the fundraising process, how you take a lot of meetings, you're finding the right fit, you're getting a lot of rejections. Was it tough to navigate what investors would be the right fit for you? Or how was that process when you were doing all those meetings? Yeah, it's a really opaque process. And yeah, it's tough. It's definitely tough. I think having other founders along for the ride, like, and their support was just really the thing that I look back at. And I'm so grateful for. Absolutely. Looking back at your journey, you know, you're a few years into this business, you guys are growing quite immensely. Are there any challenges that come to mind or any specific hurdles that you've recently faced or that you've faced in general over the years that you can share with us? Yeah, I think one that I think about a lot is this labor that's put on to female founders to become like almost like a Martha Stewart influencer type or like to have this online presence on Instagram and to be an influencer founder. I don't know a single male founder friend who has a consumer business who is an influencer. They are building their businesses and spending their time doing that, not thinking about doing a photo shoot and you know, I think there's a time and place where maybe that makes sense. And if it's, if it gives you that much joy and that much purpose, like do it. But my kind of where I had to land was that like, it does not give me that joy and I don't like it. And so it's not a part of my story and my journey. And that has been a circular. I still think about it sometimes. I wonder if I'm making the right decision, but that's certainly something. And I think along with that, is whether you're you have your own kind of personal profile on Instagram or not as a founder and entrepreneur the notion of looking at what other companies are doing or what other founders are doing too much everyone is sharing a filtered perspective and i think it's incredibly important to remember that because otherwise it can zap you of your own creative spirit and energy you know that's something that resonates i'm sure with a lot of people including myself what have you put in place in your life that has helped you not compare yourself to other founders, compare yourself to other companies, because I feel like Brightlin does just such a good job of being authentic to who you are. I think the creative aspects and the authenticity that you guys have brought is amazing. So how do you make sure you focus on that and hone in on that while not comparing yourself or not comparing yourself to other people and brands? Totally not spending too much time looking at them. There's really no point. There just isn't. And maybe have a couple of brands that don't give you that icky feeling, that brands that you're genuinely enthusiastic to see. And maybe they're in a different category than you. So you can say, oh, I love how they did that photo shoot. Like that was inspiring because they used these elements. Maybe that's something we can do and think about it from a positive lens. But if there are any brands or any people out there that make you feel actually a little bit inadequate or not, like you're not moving fast enough, Don't even look at them. It is not worth it. I think that's really important. And spending time in the real world, looking at inspiration outside of these digital spheres is really important. Like taking a long walk without your phone or sitting at a park, going to a museum. Inspiration is all around us. And, you know, sitting, if you live in a big city, sitting in like a busy corner and watching what people are wearing and how they're interacting with each other going to a cafe and looking at, you know, even the beautiful, let's say pastries and looking at the colors of produce at a market. All of those things are the things that you can take away and will make you feel good when you apply them as learnings and as creative energy to your business, rather than like, oh, this other brand did this, so we should do this. 
Absolutely. And I think getting that space outside and not always being connected to your device, whether it's social media or even emails or text messages, it gives your brain the time to wander and think, right? And be creative. So it seems like you definitely have that in place. And, you know, one question I love to ask you also, being a founder of a high growing business, you know, your team, I'm sure is still small. You're still being nimble with everything that you do. How do you manage not feeling burnt out or not feeling like you're always connected and always going in the position that you're in today? Yeah, it's a work in progress, to be honest. I think it comes in waves. I have certain days and even times of the day where it just feels like a beautiful wave and you're kind of floating in it. And then you have other moments where it feels like an avalanche almost. And, you know, so so much of it is mental. It's like, I have to check in with myself. Did I exercise today? Did I get some sun? Did I, you know, sometimes it's like back to the basics and thinking about that and thinking about why I feel this way. So I do a lot of that. And then I think it's also the realization that like, I signed up for this and it was my own volition and okay, so what does that mean? And how can I create a sense of that, whether we call it balance or whatever we want to call it, how do I sort of create that harmony between my work and my life? Absolutely. And I'm sure with you, you know, you're so passionate about your work that it could easily kind of integrate with your life all the time. I I know for me, you know, between this business that I'm launching in women's health and the podcast, like I'm always thinking about stuff because it's a passion, but at some point you do need to draw a line and make sure, like you said, you kind of focus on the basics. Are you eating? Are you sleeping? Are you going outside? Are you moving your body? All that stuff is will create you to just feel better and sustain this long road ahead you have around building your business and also being happy in your life, right? Totally. Absolutely. And it's also perspective too. Like, you know, volunteering is really helpful because it takes you outside of the bubble you live in. I think, what else do I love doing? Yeah. Volunteering is incredibly helpful. And I think watching fictional characters on television and reading fiction, not reading business books, that helps me a lot. I love that. As someone who's obviously now been an entrepreneur for a few years, building this business, I'm sure you talk to a lot of up and coming entrepreneurs and give them advice with what you've learned so far. What would you say are maybe some of the mistakes that people are doing that either want to launch a business or already have? Thinking in scarcity rather than in abundance is a big one. Like thinking that there isn't enough out there or that the world is really small and finite. Simon Sinek has a book about the finite versus the infinite. And I think understanding why you feel that way. I think a lot of children of immigrants have been raised to also feel that way. So I think that's one to dig into. I also think, yeah, this notion of having to be a personality or to have a presence on online, like we talked about, and really thinking about the motivation behind that and Yeah, that's probably another one. Those are two really good ones. I mean, the first one you mentioned, you know, I'm sure you could have easily told yourself, you know, there's so many olive oil companies out there. What makes us special to come out, right? It's like the scarcity versus the abundance mindset. And I always think 
everyone is so unique to who they are. So whatever you bring to life, there's room for everybody in this world, right? Like you are very authentic to who you are and the type of olive oil bringing, the type of story you're bringing to this world. So I'm so glad you brought that up. And also, you know, the pressure is with being an influencer. And like you said, when you're building a business, it's really hard. It's really difficult to put that mental energy on posting all the time. Or like you said, hiring a photographer when your head's down, trying to operate something. And especially like you said, you know, it doesn't align with what gets you excited and brings you joy. So that's, you know, a great point. And I think it's something that we should all think about since I feel like a lot of women founders, like you said, do feel that pressure. So I think both of those points are, are really great. What are you most proud of that a lot of people might not know about you? Well, I'm a classical Indian dancer and I'm very proud that it has been a part of my life for 25 years. More than that, actually, I think 30 years now. And what's so awesome is that you have a hobby that you enjoy that requires moving your body, right? That you can do at home or do with friends and you that yeah. is your time to disconnect. So that is just beautiful to hear. And one question we like to ask all of our guests as a closing question is, Wealth means so much more than money, and everybody has their own definition of wealth. At this stage in your life, what does wealth mean to you? Health. Health is wealth. Amen. Health is number one. Waking up, feeling optimistic about the day is the other one. I love that. Well, Aishwara, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story and being so open and vulnerable with us. It was such an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.